Father in heaven, we just thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for this great opportunity to dig into your word. I pray right now, Lord, that the words that I share, Lord, would be your words and not mine, and that, Lord, you'd be glorified in and through this time, and that, Lord, you would just meet us here, that you would align our hearts, Lord, to your righteousness, to the things, Lord, that you would have for us. And uh, Lord, I pray that we'd walk away close, very close to you, Lord, inspired and encouraged to walk with you, Lord. And again, may these be your words. So Lord, we love you, God. We thank you. We look to you and we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you were here with us last week when I did the introduction to this series that I call The Church Age, really the seven letters to the seven churches, you'll know that uh, there was a lot going on as the Lord chose to use John to send these messages to the seven pastors of the seven churches. That's who I believe he's talking about when he says, right to the angel of the church. He's talking about the pastor of the church. And uh, it is interesting because in these, in these letters, the Lord is providing quite a few exhortations. Now, if you think about this, the seven letters of the seven letters to the seven different churches in Asia, you will note that God gives two groups of exhortations. He gives, you know, encouragements to two churches where he does not give any kind of correction. It's just, here you go. Here's some encouragement. Here's some things I want to commend you on. And that's it. Now, the rest of the churches, with the exception of one, he gives them a commendation for something that they're doing right, and then what he does is he corrects them about some issues that he's concerned with, some things that he has problems with. Now, the only exception to that is Laodicea. Laodicea, he's got nothing good to say to them, right? He has, it's everything bad, and we'll talk about that. It is interesting how he does it that way. So we know that these letters are significant. They're important. And so the first letter is to the church at Ephesus. Now, I don't really want to get into the background of Ephesus, except to tell you that Ephesus was a busy town, okay? It was a very fast town. And Ephesus was the home of a lot of evil. And as a matter of fact, if you want to know more about the city of Ephesus and the background behind it, you can, of course, go back to my study that I do in Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 20, I talk about it. You can even go back to uh, the end time series, actually not the end time series, the spiritual warfare series where I teach you the book of Ephesians or if you really want to do it and have fun, you can start coming on Thursday nights in the Thursday night study because I start on the book of Ephesians this Thursday. And because we just, of course, finished Galatians, that brings us into Ephesians. And, and by the way, the book of Ephesians is super life changing. It is by far one of the most incredible books of the Bible to go through because it gives us so much insight as into the world that we cannot see, the spiritual world. And so if you're interested in that, jump in. And so we're talking about an incredible, incredible city. And of course, Ephesians, uh, Ephesus touches a lot of books that we see in the Bible. It not only touches the book of Ephesians and of course the book of Acts, and not only does it touch other uh, different regions and areas because because of the influence that it had, of course, Ephesus had a lot to do with the, the letters that we read in 1 Timothy, right? Uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, there's some ties to Ephesus with Titus. Uh, 1 and 2 and 3 John, there's certainly a tie to Ephesus because John, for a large period of his life, was an elder at the church at Ephesus. Kind of an interesting thing to think about. So there's a lot of ties that the book of Ephesians has and the church at Ephesus has to the whole body of Christ as a whole back in these days. And so it's interesting that this would be the first letter that's written, right, number one, and it would also be significant and quite interesting to consider what the content of this letter is. So let's just 
jump right into it. We'll see what God has to say. He says this to John. He says, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. So look, go to the pastor, write these things to the pastor. And as I said before, you guys, I believe that when God wants to speak to the body of Christ, of course, he speaks to them directly. We know that. It's primary. It's the most important thing that he does. And then what else happens? Then he goes to people. Now think about this. He goes to people by going to the pastor of that church. He gives the pastor of that church vision. He gives the pastor of that church insight, understanding, and then that is supposed to be propagated to the body. So uh, naturally he would say, hey, go to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. So he says, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the golden or the seven golden candlesticks. So he's basically saying this is the one who holds the pastors in his hand, the messengers of the churches, right, in his hand, and he walks amongst the church. And this is a beautiful picture of how God works in his church. We know that, right? That Christ should be at the center of the body of Christ. We know that he should be the center of the church. And so when we talk about the church of Jesus Christ, we should know that Christ walks amongst us, right? And for those of us that are leading the church, those of us that are pastors in the church, we should be directly in the hand of God. God should be holding us in his hand and we should be submitted and yielded to him because the one thing you need from me more than you need anything else. You don't need a dynamic speaker. You don't need a funny guy. You don't need a good storyteller. You don't need somebody loud to keep you awake in the morning when you're trying to fall asleep, right? What you need more than anything is you need somebody who loves God more than you. You need somebody who loves God more than anybody else. Somebody who is just completely given to the things of God. Why? Because if Christ is walking in the midst of the church and he has the pastors in his hand, that is the way the church thrives. That's the way the church grows. And so he is walking, of course, in the midst of the body of Christ. Man, I know more than anything I need to be in his hand, don't I? I need to be listening to him. I need to be knowing what it is that he has for me. I need to be walking according to his word. And so this is a very, very important introduction, right? This is a, it's a beautiful picture that he lays out for us. Now, let's talk about the commendation that the Lord gives, because it is a good one, right? Look what he says. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, right? So we'll just stop right here. I, I'll, I'll just, for just one quick second, I will comment. I know the translators don't like me doing this, stopping in the middle of a verse, but I have to here, right? He says, I know your works, I know your labor, and I know your patience. What does he mean when he says works? Well, he, he says, I know that you guys are active. You guys have got your tentacles in everything as the church. And he says, for that, I'm, I know that. I can recognize that. I can recognize you are a group of people that are in the middle of everything and that you do everything. And I think in many ways, Calvary Chapel Signal Hill parallels that, right? We are definitely a church filled with works, right? We are a church that gets involved in everything. And, and you guys may not know, but we're involved in so many areas in the body of Christ. We're, we're involved in areas you don't even realize we're involved in. We're involved in areas that you guys don't even consider oftentimes. Like for example, here's something that's very interesting. In a few weeks, you're gonna hear from a guy named Brian McDaniel. He's a pastor, missionary, that serves out in Haiti. He's gonna come out, he's gonna share with us what God is doing over there in Haiti. This is one of the places we support. 
start. As a matter of fact, within, I'll probably say the next few weeks, I'm going to start teaching in the Bible college in Haiti. Now, thank God I'm not going to fly over there because my poor body won't be able to handle that, right? But I will on a regular basis be teaching these Haitian students the word, be doing a Bible college class for them using the wonders of technology, right? So it, it's kind of interesting, but we have our hands involved. We support the Bible college in Peru. We actually support all kinds of works and missions and things all over the world. As a matter of fact, you guys may or may not know this, but in one of the cities that my grandfather ministered in, in Egypt, Najah Hamadi, we actually helped, we participated and contributed greatly to building this clinic that my uncle now is the founder of, right? And it's a beautiful clinic that ministers to tons of people in Egypt, right? And they give these people the gospel. And we're involved in areas, you guys, like, I mean, it's so funny how we're involved in so many areas. I mean, just through the radio ministry alone, we are in the households and, and lives of millions of people across the country. And it's amazing to hear the kind of input that we get back. And even in the community, I mean, we're doing things that people don't even know we're actually doing. Uh, this was really cool. I got two phone calls recently over the last couple of weeks. One phone call I got, and, and, and it was an interesting one. They said, oh, Pastor James, this was on a Saturday morning. There's somebody in the church parking lot right now. I said, okay, uh, what are they doing? Well, they're working on a car in the church parking lot. They, it kind of look, they kind of look a little shady. You know, uh, what's going on? You know, is that something you guys allow? And I said, well, yeah, kind of considering the fact that the brother that's working on the car is somebody who goes to our church and he's a mechanic and he's using his skills to help out another brother. They can't necessarily afford to get the car fixed. So yeah, it's a ministry that we have. It's something that we're doing, right? And then I get another call recently and this one was kind of funny too. This one was, Pastor James, I think somebody is trying to get into the youth room. Do, do, do we now rent the church? Do we rent parts of the church? I go, whoa, 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 slow your roll, dude. What do you mean someone's getting in the youth? They're in there. I said, okay, uh, what are you talking about? Like, we, we don't rent the church for anything. Well, yeah, but these people are there. I said, can you describe them? So he begins to describe them to me. And my brain turns on, you know, once in a while and realizes what he was describing. And I said, yeah, those guys are bagpipers, okay? And, you know, it's interesting. He's a very good friend of mine. He's one of the best bagpipers on, on literally in the West Coast. This him and this band. And he came to me and he said, hey, we got kicked out of our uh, rehearsal area. Can we rehearse at the church? Yeah, sure, no problem. He's a godly man. All of, his, all of the bagpipers, they love the Lord. They're all believers. They got a great ministry. So go out there and practice. It's a great way to get involved. It's a great ministry. It's a great tool. Go ahead and do the things you got to do. No problem. Just promise me you'll play the bagpipes at my memorial service. It'll all work out. Well, I'll be good, right? But we're involved. We're involved in lots of different ways. And God, by the grace of God, has used us to be able to do things, literally works, to be able to get involved and to minister to people, to change lives, to help people, to get plugged in. It's something that we do, right? And then he mentions not only their works, he says your labor, Meaning you guys are hard workers. Now, I will tell you, this is an area that we definitely need to change, right? I, I spoke about this, about the need for us to be able to step up. It's part of the vision. Um, it's funny how that works, how, how literally I would probably say 100%. Ah, that's wrong. That's not, a, that's not a fair number. I would probably say 90% of the work that needs to be done at the church is done by about 2% of the people. 
right? And that's got to get changed, right? That shouldn't be the case. I mean, you think about the math. Let's just do simple math here, right? If you have one person taking care of a single job that's overwhelming, it could take them literally 14, 15, 16, 17 hours to accomplish. If you get 20 people involved in the same job, it takes 45 minutes to get done, right? It kind of makes sense. There's power in numbers and there's power in the idea that those of us that are in the body of Christ would choose to labor. And I think this is an area we can improve in. But the church of Ephesus did not have this problem. The church in Ephesus, everybody was getting involved. Everybody was pitching in. Everyone was grabbing a shovel or grabbing a uh, whatever it was that they needed to do. They were all laborers. They were all getting involved. And it was a great thing. It was a well-oiled machine. That's what the church of Ephesus was. And then he says, your patience. That was the other thing he commended them for. Listen, these were people that were literal perseverers. These were people that had some resolve. You know what I mean? Their resolve was not breakable. These were people that literally went on and on and on and on and on and they did not stop. They were very, very good at what they did and they were solid and they didn't get tired. They didn't grow weary, right? And he goes on to describe these characteristics. He says, look, and thou cannot bear them which are evil and thou canst, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them to be liars. I love that. He says, you guys are even good at weeding out false doctrine. You guys have become very, very good at identifying those times where, where people are not teaching correctly and you're, and you're identifying them. You're not allowing it to enter into the church. You're taking a stand for things that are evil, kind of like what we talked about with the whole flagpole thing, right? About, you know, really standing up for the things that we need to stand up with. And, and this is something, by the way, the church um, recently, especially in California, has been very, very good in. As you remember when Senator Morell was here, he said, with the help of the church, with the help of the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, we have put a stop to many, many laws that would have been nefariously destructive to the republic. And that's a beautiful thing. And so we are the type of people, and I think this is true, we have a resolve that not only can be broken, or not, that, can be, that cannot be broken, but we have a desire to weed out that which is evil. And we've done a pretty good job at it, right? We've done a pretty good job at identifying. And I think you guys, as the body of Christ, have been very good at this. I think the people here at Calvary Chapel Signal Hill have been exceptionally good at identifying false doctrine. And I think it's probably because you've been taught so well, right? You guys know the word so well that when the fake comes along, you know when it's fake, and so you want nothing to do with it. I had a brother call me recently, and this is one of these guys that's part of the old traditional guard from the Middle Eastern uh, culture, and um, he and he he has a history of being in the ministry and he called me and because I'm a youngster, his expectation is that I'm just going to, I'm just going to do whatever he asked me to do. So he called me and he said, uh, James, I expect to be at your church next week and I'm going to, I just need a few minutes. I'm going to share with your people. And, uh, so I'll see you then. And I said, no, I'm not going to see you then. If I see you next week, I'll see you sitting in the pew, but you're not going to be standing behind my pulpit. No, I will. You don't understand. I'm going to No, you won't. And if you attempt to, my security people are going to kick you out. So it's up to you. Consider this your, 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 your big no. Well, why? Why won't you let me in your church? All the other churches do. I tell you I won't let you in the church. You're a heretic. Well, I knew you when you were a baby. I don't care if you knew me when I was a baby. I don't care if you were ministering when I was a baby. The bottom line is you teach false doctrine. So I'm doing you a favor because you go up in front of the body of Christ at Calvary Chapel Signal Hill, they'll start speaking up while you're talking. They'll shut you down. You don't get that. Besides, I'm not going to expose them to your garbage. So nice try. Go call somebody else. Now, of course, I got a little beat up for that and you're rude and all this other stuff. I'm not rude. I'm just telling the truth, right? 
We've been pretty good at that. You know, we've done a good job at that. The church at Ephesus were certainly good at that. They didn't tolerate garbage. They literally allowed, they did not allow false teaching to creep in. They were, uh, they were amazing, 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 amazing people in that they did not tolerate any of that stuff. They knew the word, they taught the word well, and, and, and they were good, really good at finding fake news. They were. That's wrong. We're not going to believe that. Look what else he says they were good at doing. He says, and thou hast, uh, sorry, and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake, hast labored and hast not fainted. In other words, you have busted your tails for the name of Jesus. You have, you have worked hard and you know what? You haven't gotten weary. In other words, you are a literal, you have been a work truck. You have literally gone out of your way. You've busted your tails and you have not stopped. You cannot, like no, no matter what gets thrown at you, you're able to stomach the kind of labor. And I've seen in many ways people have those characteristics even here. Because for the 2% that do the 90% of the work, you ought to watch that 2%. It's pretty amazing how persistent they can be. It's pretty amazing how they won't give up for anything. It's pretty amazing how they keep swinging and don't allow a single person to stop them. It's a wonderful characteristic, and that was the characteristic that the church at Ephesus had. Listen, guys, if you had looked at the church of Ephesus from outside, you would be like, dang, those guys have their act together. I would love to be a church like them. Any pastor that looked at the function and the form of a church of Ephesus, they would go to that church and go, man, I wish I could be like you. I'm going to take some pictures, write some notes down, record some sermons because you are the church to be. That's exactly who they were. Except for one problem. Here's the problem. You ready? This is sad. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast what? Left thy first love. By the way, when everybody quotes this passage, they don't ever say, hey, bro, you've left your first love. You know what they always say? They say you've lost your first love, right? That's wrong. It's never been correct. The term here is that you have left your first love. You know what that means when it says you've left your first love? It means you have made a willful decision to choose an act of rebellion towards the Lord. You've walked away from this whole mind that says, God, no matter what, I'm going to obey you. Because if you remember, we talked about this, right? Love is not an emotion. See, people think that they love the Lord. They come all the time to church and say, I love the Lord, right? And what do they do? They come to church for an hour and a half, and they're louder than me. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You hear them singing? All of us that are worship leaders, we hear these people sometimes. You know you know those people, right? You've got the earplugs in your ear because you've got the, the, you know, the music pumping in, those little earplugs they wear. It, they're, they're, they're headphones, really, and they're monitors. And even through the monitors, you can hear a guy, praise the Lord. I'm not saying they're a hypocrite. I'm just saying there's lots of people that sing that. That way and they love to go for it amen ah, they stand up and ha they do all that hymn and hon and everything and they love it they're into it the experience is marvelous for them it's a fantastic experience they come in they're just overwhelmed they got lots of joy everything is great they're filled with energy there's all kinds of wonderful things that are going on then they go home and live like hell literally they got their charge and because they love their time at church and they love to sing and they love to talk to the brethren and they love hearing the word of God and they love saying amen, hallelujah, praise to you. They love all that stuff. They think, oh, I love the Lord with all my heart. No, you don't love the Lord. You love the emotion. You love the experience. 
It's the same thing that we talk about worship leaders every now and then. You know, people oftentimes will tell me, oh, Pastor James, that worship leader is so anointed. What part of the experience was anointed? When they dim the lights and turn on the smoke? Is that the anointed part? Is the anointed part that they are so good at what they do that they elicit an emotional response? Let me tell you something. I, you ever listen to the old James Brown band, anybody? Like the real James Brown band, Maceo Parker and his clan. You guys know what I'm talking about? These are the funkiest, I mean, these guys are amazing musicians, right? Those guys move me. They, may, they, they get it. You listen to them, wah, pass the peas. I mean, that's why I'm, I'm going crazy. I love that music. Old school jazz, whatever, it moves me. Listen, those guys are not anointed, you guys. They're good at eliciting an emotional response because of their talent. It has nothing to do with being anointed. So we can go to church and we can experience the fun and we can, ha, ah, that was great. And oh, praise the Lord, he touched me and all that. But you still, in your heart, have made a decision to rebel against God, which means you've left your first love. I hear it all the time. I talk to somebody, comes, you know, I call it the old school hippie culture. Now they're called hipsters, right? I had a young man come up to me a while ago, and he said, you know, James, I, I'm just, I'm a free spirit. No, no, let me give you the translation for your phrase, I'm a free spirit. You are a rebellious heart. So you call yourself a free spirit, and you justify your behavior by calling yourself a free spirit, but the actual definition of what you're saying is a rebellious heart. God says, do this. You say, well, I'm going to do it my own way. I got my own special way of doing this, and I'm going to do, and I'm going to, oh, I'm just free, and we're going to just serve God our way, and we're going to do this, and that's what everybody does. Everybody thinks that way. A lot of people think that way, but here's the problem. You know what you've done? You have left your first love. You've made the decision to walk away from the word of God. and not follow what his word says. And by the way, that is the root problem, right? That's the core of the problem. What are manifestations of that problem? Manifestations of that problem, the way it manifests itself is when you are looking to other things to find fulfillment. Here's a great example of the core problem, a manifestation of the core problem. Now you're running to escape to other things to find, right? Some people escape to alcohol. Some people escape to drugs. Some people escape to, to, uh, to doing recreational things. You know, I, I went um, uh, recently, I took my wife to go see all the Christmas lights at Disneyland, right? And let me tell you something. I mean, you have to save up your whole life to go once. But, you know, I, I, I mean, let me tell you something. We, I, I, we, when we walked in the gates, it was like worth it. I mean, to see the reaction on her face when she saw the beautiful Christmas lights and everything. And let me tell you something about that place. That place is is crazy cool in a lot of ways, right? I mean, you look at it being, I, we went on, now I'm a Star Wars guy. I love Star Wars, right? We went on this Millennium Falcon ride. I want my wife to go on that ride. She hasn't gone on it yet. We went on this Millennium Falcon ride. And let me tell you something. If you have not been on that ride, it's the greatest ride on the face of the earth. It's better than any roller coaster. I mean, it's the, if you love Star Wars, you got to do it, Right? But here's the thing about a place like that, and it's something that I was noticing recently. I noticed it the other day. Very, very interesting thing. You see, you look around in a place like that, and all you see is a group of faces desperate. I mean desperate. I'm not talking, look, I'm not talking about like, like uh, just, uh, uh, just every day. No, I'm talking about a group of faces desperate to get away from their emotions of depression. Desperate to get away from the pain of their everyday lives. Desperate to escape from the garbage. Why do you think people get cattle prodded in there? Do you realize, God, that that, guys, that that parking lot, their parking lots have a total of 100,000 spaces that are normally full. 
You're talking about a capacity of a million plus people every day that are going in there and all of them are paying hundreds of dollars to get in so that they can go experience the happiest place on earth. And don't get me wrong, they work hard at making that the happiest place on earth. It's a wonderful place to be, it is. I mean, I was crying when I was standing in the little room watching the robotic Lincoln give a message, you know? (laughs) Thank you God for the 16th president of the United States. I mean, seriously. It's wonderful, it's great, I, don't get me wrong. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Why do you think people make so much money on movies? You know, you go to a movie theater, people are dying to walk into movie theater. Do you wanna know why? Because for two hours, you can get away from the whole world. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with the movie. I love a good movie. I go into the movie theater, there's nothing like a dark room where you eat popcorn, you take a few sips of soda, and you fall asleep. It's amazing. And the usher has to wake you up because your wife's embarrassed, you know, the whole thing. I mean, it's wonderful. I love that kind of experience. It's great, but people pay so much money because they want to escape. It's an escape mechanism. So manifestation of Christians. Listen, when Christians have left their first love, they begin to place an emphasis, not only on things like that. Now, don't get me wrong. If you have a year pass for Disney, hey, that's good, good for you. You're actually wise, right? You're keeping them, you're, you're kind of beating the man, especially if you go more than a few times. I'm not talking about if you go there, you watch movies, you're one of these guys. No, but if you're looking to those things to fill the gap of your pain and your hardship and all the other things that are going on, you're that person. It's a manifestation of a core problem that exists. If you're the type of person that I'm all for cars, I, we have guys at this church that have cars that I literally, I cannot be within five feet of them because I'll get drool all over their cars. I mean, amazing vehicles, right? Amazing vehicles. I, I love the classic cars. We got guys here in our church that are in car clubs. We got one of my assistant pastors is in a car club. You know what I mean? Nothing wrong with that stuff. I think that stuff is great. But when that stuff becomes the goal of your life, when that stuff becomes the thing that you run away to, when it becomes your job, when whatever it is that you put at the place of God, guess what, guys? You've made a conscious decision to leave your first love. You've walked away from him, and now you're looking to other things to find fulfillment. For some people, it's their jobs. There's so many things that it can be, but it's never about, we'll stop, because I, I don't, when I see somebody who's left their first love, and they're, let's say they're going to, you know, uh, they're addicted, they're buying cars like crazy, or they're doing this, or they're doing that, I never go to them and say, you have to stop that, because you've, you, th- that thing is your God. You want to know why? Because if I can convince them to stop doing what they're doing right there, they're going to find something else that's going to become their God, Right? I want to deal with the core problem. The core problem is you have made a conscious decision to walk away from your love that you have for the Lord. Your willfulness to obey him, to walk in obedience, you've literally denied it. You've walked away from it. That's what he's talking about here. Look what he says is the solution. It's so interesting what he says. Here are the commands, and he gives several of them, okay? He says, number one, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. That's the first command. The second command is repent, and the third command is do the first works. That's a very simple formula, right? Very simple formula. But let me tell you, for some people, it's not so simple. See, when he says remember where you came from, he's talking about the idea of understanding and knowing and recognizing 
where the condition of your heart was when you first made that commitment to Christ, that love that you had for him, where it was. And then he says, repent. Now, I'm gonna talk about the repent thing really quickly because I think it's just so obvious that it's easy issue to get past. I think it's important to get past. Repent means turn the other way, okay? Repent means you're going north, you better go south. I was on my way back from San Jacinto recently. I was with my wife. She misled me, just for the record. I'm just telling you right now, she led me astray. Anyway, well, she distracted me. I made one wrong turn. One! One wrong turn cost me 35 minutes. The GPS said it's going to be 35 minutes before you can turn around and go back in the place that you need to go. And that's no good because I was coming back from the dentist. My teeth was hurting. I need to go to the pharmacy to get my pain meds. It's bad. So I'm like, this is horrible. The only thing that was going through my head when I recognized I was going the wrong way is I got to turn around. 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 You want to know why? Because if I keep going the wrong way, guys, I'm not going to get any closer to where I need to go. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get further away and it's going to take me longer to come back. So the sooner the better. Then I found a moment, right? Where I saw a divider in the road that looked like it was all broken up. And I think that was the CHP doing me a favor. You know, I don't know. So I just made a U-turn, right? But the beautiful, the statute has expired, so it's okay, I can't get busted for that. Anyway, the beautiful part about that is, the beautiful part about that is, when you recognize you've gone the wrong way, see, if you remember when you were at first, if you remember where you came from, and you've recognized now you're going the opposite way, now you know that the fastest way to go back there is a straight line. You don't go home and explore. Let's just keep going this way. Maybe things will go where they take me. No, they won't. They'll take you straight to hell. Right? No. You know what? Here's the way I was going. I need to turn around because I don't want to end up in a bad place. So guess what? I'm going to turn around as soon as possible. I'm going to turn around as soon as possible. I talked to a guy recently who was getting ready to have weight loss surgery. And um, he had told me, uh, and, it, and, and I beat him up a little bit over it. He had told me, because I, I walked through his shoes, right? You got to keep in mind, I, I was a man who was easily 350 pounds heavier than I am now at one point. And I walked, to, I, I, this guy was telling me, my surgery's going to be in three days. So today, I'm going to eat as much junk as I possibly can. I'm going to just get it all into my system. And I just looked at him and I go, you are as stupid as you look. You really are. You're dumb. Because you know what you're going to do, pal? You're going to eat 10 pounds worth of food right now. Okay? You're going to gain all that weight. And now you're going to add to the pain in your journey to get back down. If I were you, I'd be wanting to lose as much weight as I possibly can. Because when they tie you up the way they're going to tie you up, you'll never see that weight again. So why not start lower? People don't think that way. People think, oh, I'm going to just keep going in the direction I'm going and everything's going to be good. Well, that's what the fool says in their heart. The fool says, you keep, if, if you keep doing the same thing and you expect a different result, you're a fool. You're a fool. So he says, repent. And then he says, do the first works. And by the way, when he says do the first works, he's not saying do the things that you used to do when you were a new believer and, and you were really loving God like you've never loved him before, okay? Because if that was true, then I would create, a, and I, I, would, I would probably get kicked out of my house, right? And I own my house, okay? 
<laughs> give you an example. When I first came to know the Lord, <laughs> I would wake up in the morning, five o'clock in the morning sometimes, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm a musician. I play every one of the instruments you see on stage. And, uh, you know, my nerve disease has affected my ability at times or whatever. Uh, when, I was, when I first came to know the Lord, I think, man, I want to worship the Lord. And you know what? I want to do it out in nature. So what would I do? I would go on the second-story balcony of my father's house at 5.45 in the morning. Lord, I worship you. Louder than I'm speaking to you right now. And what would happen? People, my neighbors, like from blocks away, would roll down the window, shut up! And I'll give them, God, just deal with them right now. They hate you. They hate you. They're not walking with you. They're not walking with you. You know, shut up! You're going to go to hell! You know what I mean? I just keep, oh, Lord, oh, right? Okay, he's not saying go back to those works. He's not talking about that. Because if it was about that, then that would be a problem, right? He's talking about what was the heart what was the condition of the man, of James Cadiz, that drove him to doing something like that? What was the condition of the heart of a man who would be driven to do something like that and not even care about his surroundings? Now, don't get me wrong. Age contributed to me not caring about my surroundings. But what was it that drove me to do that? I'm not a morning person. If you tell me I got to wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm not going to bed. It's me. Right? But what is it that would drive me to do that? What was, the, what was the mindset? Listen, it was a condition of my heart. And he says, go back to the condition of your heart that drove that. Imagine this. Imagine how sophisticated each and every single one of you have become in your relationship with God, right? You've become better students of the word. You've become better articulators of God's perspective. You guys have, in many cases, your pocketbooks have filled a lot more. You guys are in great positions now. You've been walking with the Lord for a while. Many of you, I mean, imagine taking that heart if you've lost it and restoring your heart to that condition with all the tools you have today. Can you imagine how much more effective you would be? Can you imagine how much more powerful you would be? Can you imagine how much, how much greater of a witness you would be? How much more fulfilled your life would be? When he says go back to those works, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, there was a heart that drove you to go to that place. What was that heart? Find it and go back to that, right? And I think that each and every single one of us can do that at one point or another in our life. I think for me, that's what devotions are for me every day. Devotions are designed for me to examine my life and examine my heart and go, okay, am I choosing to love the Lord or am I stepping away from my love for him? If I'm choosing to love him, let's do this. Let's give this day to him with everything that we have, everything that we do. Let's just give it all to him. Let's just enjoy ourselves. Let's walk with God. Let's enjoy the beautiful life he's given us with the same heart that he has for us. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's saying, right? So he says, remember these things. And then he says this, he says, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now, everybody says that this is the Lord saying, unless you repent, you're gonna lose your salvation. Baloney, that's not what the Lord is saying here. What the Lord is basically saying is he's saying, because there's, there's a few words I want you to focus on. He says, I will what? Do this quickly. I will come to thee quickly. In other words, what I'm going to do is I am going to make strong the position that you refuse to give up. So if you continue to choose to keep me out of your life, I'm not gonna rape you. I'm not gonna force myself on you. Uh, bottom line is this. 
You have to want this. You have to do this. If you don't, I'm, listen, I'm going to make free your decision. If this is your decision and you want to walk away from me, no problem. I'm going to let you do it. I'm not going to grab you and make you do something. This is why I offend people all, oftentimes. I have wonderful, amazing, incredible mothers or sweet wives that will come up to me. Mostly it's wives. They'll come up to me and they'll say, my husband is a mess. Please, will you, you know, he's willing to come into counseling. And I go, let me ask you a question. What do you mean when you say he's willing to go into counseling? Is he willing to go into counseling because you're telling him you're going to completely make his life miserable if he doesn't go into counseling? Is that what you mean? You tell me, what does that mean? No, he really wants to. Okay, if he really wants to, great. We'll all come in and we'll have a meeting. If he doesn't, have him call me when he needs help. Have him call me when he actually wants help. I've had guys, oftentimes, they come to me, they say, hey, James, I need help with addiction. I need help getting healed from this. I need help getting healed from that. And I say, okay, no problem. I'm going to work with you. And then you work with them and they don't really want to do it. They want to do things their own way. They have their own solution. Uh, The last time somebody did that to me was a few weeks ago. And I basically told them, you know what? Call me when you actually want help. I really want help. I really No, you don't. You're a liar. You don't want help. Because if you wanted help, you would do things the way that you were being told to do things. If you do, then great, come, we'll do it. If not, then fine. And, and oftentimes, to, to people that are dealing with that kind of thing, well, you want help? You're going in for 60 days. You're going to go do a rehab. Oh, no, I can't do that. Okay, then you don't want help, right? Well, God thinks the same way. He's like, look, if you don't want to love me, hey, that's your choice. You don't have to love me but I'm not going to stand here in your midst and force you to love me, right? You're going to either love me or you're not going to love me, and that's your decision. So if you want to make the decision to to rebel against me, no problem. I'm going to let you do it. That's the bottom line. And by the way, can I tell you, the worst thing that can ever happen to me or to you is for God to allow us to be to our own will, uh, to, to allow us to make hard a position that chooses to rebel against him. Because you know what we do? We walk into the place of destruction when we do that. We destroy our lives. We destroy our lives. And I've dealt with this many times. I, I, I see this on a regular basis. People come in, they have crisis. Oh, we need help, we need help. And they listen, things go well, everything is good. And now once everything is good and everything's all squared away, hey, thank you, we don't need you anymore. Adios, we'll, we'll never see you again. Oh, I'm gonna pray for you because you're about to head towards a road of destruction like you've never seen. That's just how it goes, right? And the Lord is saying the same thing. He's saying there's a point in time where it's just... You, I'm not going to be walking in your midst because you don't want me to walk in your midst. And he's saying that to the church. That's a scary thing to say, right? I mean, can you imagine the the Lord approaching you and saying, look, you need to repent. And if you don't repent, you just really don't want me around. I won't stick around. I'll be gone. It's kind of scary, isn't it? It's, 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 I I don't understand why anybody would want to do that. But that's what he's saying here. Look what he goes on to say. And it is interesting. He does bring up another compliment to them. He says, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but there is a little bit of a homework assignment I'll send you home with. If you guys are interested, go study the name Nicolaitans, okay? It's interesting. There's some interesting ties. By the way, the etymology of the word Nike comes from this word Nicolaitans, right? It's a, it's a Greek word. And um, if you don't know, 
what Nike is all about, the whole, you know, the brand of Nike and where it comes from, it's the same, it comes from the same definition and mentality of this word. Who were the Nicolaitans? I'll just, I'll be very brief about it. Nicolaitans were a group of people who chose to rule over, uh, conquer basically and have dominion over people. They were people who were forcers, right? They were people who were, who were just straight, I'm going to impose myself on you. They were hardcore rulers, right? And Nicolaitans, uh, a modern day Nicolaitan might be a, a pastor who doesn't allow people to get married in the church unless they get his permission, right? That might be something, might be a good example of something like that. There's a lot of that kind of nonsense that's going on. And, and oftentimes, you know, when I was younger in the ministry, I always felt like I needed to just make sure people were doing things the way the Bible said. And if they weren't, I needed to push them into that way. You know, now it's kind of gotten to a point in my life where it's like, oh, you're coming to snitch on that person. Okay. Let me call that person over here. Okay. Come here. Okay. You guys talk, you know, because I don't want anything to do with that. Right. My job is to point you to Jesus. If you hear about Jesus and you don't want to do what Jesus wants you to do, hey, no problem. I'm here to always point you to Christ, but you need to live your lives the way God has called you to live your life, right? I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. I'm going to tell you what the Bible says about how you should live your life, but I don't want to get involved. (laughs) You know what I mean when I say that? In other words, I don't want to rule over you. I don't want to be one of those guys that says, open up your wallet. Let me see what you're making. And are you giving this much? And there are churches that do that kind of nonsense. It's absurd right? And, and God commended if, if Ephesus for this. God said, hey, listen, you hate their deeds, so do I. So that's a good thing that you've done. But then he says this, and this is interesting because this is why the seven letters to the seven churches are all directly for us. They speak to us, guys. They speak to us directly. Look what he says. He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. If you have an ear, if you're capable of listening to the words that are being said, he says, you need to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And notice what he says, to him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life. Life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. By the way, when he says to him that overcometh, I will give him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of, in the midst of paradise of God. Can I just explain to you how significant that is? This is not talking about salvation. Okay. Look, as a believer, when you choose to receive Christ in your life, you are saved based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. No ifs, ands, buts about it, right? But what this is talking about is this is talking about that step further that you can take, that more in-depth relationship that God wants you to have. Like, did you know, did you, did you guys realize that when you live on this earth, it can be a reflection of that which is waiting for you in heaven? Did you guys know that? Did you guys know that that which is waiting for you in heaven can very easily be handed down to you in the life that you live on this earth? The kind of peace, the kind of, uh, uh, the kind of fulfillment, the goodness of God. Did you know that God can bring to you on this earth this kind of fulfillment where everything you experience, every part of your life is something that brings a piece of that tree of life? You're, you're, you're biting of a fruit that just gives you this great, wonderful calmness, this peace, this joy, this understanding. This is the work of God, you guys, right? And so I know lots of people who received the Lord, Lord in their heart, and uh, they're going to barely make it to heaven, right? Just based on the commitment that they made to Christ and the, and the fact that Christ died for them, it's work. But they chose to live their lives so nominally for the Lord that they don't get to experience all the wonderful things that God has for them here on this earth. Right? Some of you might say, well, James, I'm going through a really hard time right now in my life. I don't see anything that's wonderful. Well, maybe you ought to consider the perspective of what wonderful actually looks like. 
How about the fact that maybe you might be clinically depressed? How about the fact that you might be going through some insane things right now that your own brain is messing with you on? Chemical imbalances, full-blown depression, pain, hurt, suffering, but yet in the midst of that, you can find peace. In the midst of that, even though you're diagnosed clinically depressed, even though you're going through so much suffering, so much pain, so much hardship, you can still say, wow, in the midst, of, in the place that I'm in, I still have the peace of God, right? And I know what that feeling is. I know what it feels like to wake up and to feel a gray cloud over your head and be like, man, I do not want to get out of bed right now because life feels like it stinks. And God says, you know what, James? You get in the shower, you go anyway, and then, man, I mean, by the time you get going, you recognize, yeah, I kind of feel this ugly cloud around me, but I also feel the peace of a God who's hugging me and embracing me right now. You guys know what I'm talking about. All of you know what I'm talking about. That's what he says. He says, you have an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For those of you that are overcomers, this is the promise that you have. And we are. We are not only overcomers, guys. We're more than overcomers. We're more than conquerors. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's a series that we're going through on Tuesday night for the men's study. That God has given us more than that which is mediocre, right? More than the average bear, so to speak. He's given it to us for his glory. And that's what we have access to, folks. If you have not, if you're in a place where you've thought about it, you say, man, I've left my first love and it's time. Listen, today is the best day to do that, right? Find that little hole in the wall where you can make that U-turn, right? And go right in the right direction because God wants to change you and transform you and bless you and build you up and give you the incredible life that he promises you can have, the eternal life that you know you already have, but a reflection of that, an extension of that eternal life to say, Lord, I am going back to that place of loving you and I'm gonna experience the reward of the life lived loving you, amen? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and we thank you for the things that we learn in it, Lord. We know that your word is true. We know that it's valuable. We know that it's real. We know that it's important and we know that it's precious. So, Lord, may we hold to it. May we yield to it, Lord. And may we, for those of us that made the decision at some point or another to walk away from our first love, may we walk right back to it, Lord. And may we seek you with a whole heart, Lord, loving you with everything that we do. So we love you, God. We thank you. We look to you and we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.